what did you have for breakfast this morning? I had a half of a scone and some coffee. It was wonderful. Oh, what kind of scone? So there's a um, a bakery around the corner from our house that we've now just decided to walk to every day. And they make two kinds of scones. They make a maple walnut one, a cranberry walnut one, and then a, um, a lemon currant. Today, my husband and I shared the lemon currant scone. Hi, I'm Tim. Welcome to We're Only Human. This is a podcast celebrating the resiliency of the human spirit by exploring journeys of people from all walks of life. There are often little nuggets of wisdom we can find in another person's story that we can then apply to our own lives. We're not perfect. We're not alone. We're only human. Today, I'm joined by Lydia Slaby, who is a daughter, a wife, author of a book called Wait, It Gets Worse, which is a great title. Um, I shouldn't be laughing because it's the story of your unexpected diagnosis of cancer, uh, your struggle with that as uh, you calling yourself a control freak, then this unexpected open heart surgery you had, and then throughout it all, your marriage and your husband and your life. Um, although I feel okay smiling about it because the way you write is just so beautiful. And I think you found so much positivity in all this. So, um, for, okay. First thing I have to say, and I don't know if this sounds like a fanboy, but everybody listening has to go read this book. <laughs> Cause Aww, thanks, wait, <laughs> yes, wait, wait, it gets worse by Lydia Slaby. I'm serious. I don't, I'm trying to get back into reading now, but I'm, oh my gosh, I couldn't put it down. Um, Lydia, first of all, that's a, this story. I mean, there's so much to talk about, but when did you ever consider I'm going to write a book about this. I mean, that can't have been an easy task just from the logistics of writing, but actually like the emotional part of that. At what point were you like, yeah, this could be a book for others to read? That's an excellent question. It it turned into a book for others to read, frankly, after I'd written the manuscript. Um, because while I was sick and I was sick with either cancer or recovery from cancer and chemo or this heart surgery situation for about a year and a half, and, um, and I wrote a blog while I was going through all that. And I wrote it for me. Um, I wrote it, theoretically, I wrote it to help my friends and family know what was going on with me, but I really wrote it for me. And it became very clear that that's what I was doing. Um, and so when I realized that this sort of huge health debacle that I'd gone through um, was something that was going to be exceptionally difficult to recover from emotionally... Um, I decided to write a book. And once I actually had probably about nine tenths of the manuscript, I let my husband read it for the first time. And he sort of made his way through it feverishly. And a few days later, he came back to me and he said, sweetie, I know that you'd never thought about publishing this before, but I do think that there's a lot of stuff in here that could be useful for other people. And I said, I'm sorry, what? Um, <laughs> because it's a very personal memoir. It, there's a it lot really is. in it. Uh, well, <laughs> um, and you know, I mean, like, I'm not that private of a person, but you know, like talking about how often you're having sex and like, there's, there's a lot in there. And, um, and so when I find, when I did sort of read it with that 
perspective, I did realize that it was potentially valuable for other people. And that's when I went through the process of trying to find a, a publisher and all of that, which was a thing. Um, oh, I imagine. It really yeah. is. I, I mean, you could speak to how personal it is because obviously it's your story and you wrote it. But from my perspective as a reader, you know, I thought about this today, you know, getting to chat with you. And I thought, I'm going to hop on this video chat with Lydia. And I feel like I know her. We've never met. She has no oh. idea who I am. But I read this book and I, I know her husband, Michael, and I know their story of, you know, getting together and, you know, everything they went through. And I thought, that's a really powerful thing you've done. And obviously, I mean, I know you to the extent you've allowed me to know you through the book. But I mean, I would agree with your husband. There is so much in there that others could gain. I mean, myself included. So I'm glad that you decided to share it with the world. Well, you're very welcome. I'm glad to hear that. Thank you. That's why I did yeah. it. Oh, I'm so glad. So so I, I I kind of gave a quick rundown and I hate to just, you know, put it in a, a quick format like that. But I mean, the gist of it is, here's the part I want to start. This is the part that struck me most in the book. Okay. So you are, you're kind of explaining, I mean, you, you give us the premise of like, you got cancer out of nowhere. And obviously you weren't planning for this. Not that I guess many people do, but yeah. And then you kind of explained. Hopefully not. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's very true. You had this chapter where you explain, kind of give some background on where you met your husband and, you know, your kind of life together, you know, you met very young and came in and out of each other's life. And I'm reading this and I'm like, oh my gosh, this is just beautiful. They, you know, they have their ups and downs and like any two people, but clearly they're like drawn to each other and they're probably meant to be. And, you know, it's kind of like Pam and Jim in the office. Like this is going to happen. And I'm reading this and I'm like, oh, that's great. And then we kind of start to learn about how you got diagnosed with cancer unexpectedly. You go to the doctor on a Thursday for another reason. But the... To me, the like wow moment was, and you reveal this later in the book, I guess, spoiler alert, but uh, <laughs> you reveal later that like you and your husband were going through some troubling times to the point where he was, you know, moved out of the apartment for some time. He moves yeah. back in the night before you go to the doctor the next morning and get this diagnosis. And I stopped and I was like, you know, I thought everything was great between them. I thought, you know, they went into this strong, united. And I mean, I, I, you did, but that that just threw me for a loop. I, I I don't even know what the question is here. I just can't believe that. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting. A really good friend of ours from high school read the book, and he was incredibly sweet. Because, of course, when it first came out, I begged everyone to do Amazon reviews because that's important for writers, which drives me crazy. But it is. Sure. And so, you know, we have to do it. Yeah. And... um. And he was really cute because I was getting all of these lovely reviews saying, you know, oh, health and cancer and transformation and da 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 da. And all he wrote was, this is the most incredible love story I've ever read. And I know these people, and this is still the most incredible love story I've ever read. Um, and I, in some respects, this is a, this book is a love story. And it's not just, the story between my husband and I, but it's the story between me and, and my own body. Um, but yes, to answer your question, uh, the book does start with the day that I got diagnosed with cancer and then it backtracks a little bit. And so then we discover what happened in the weeks leading up to me being diagnosed with cancer. And yeah, my husband and I were separated and he decided to move back into the apartment literally the night before I went to the doctor. Um, it's and, just mind. That's just mind blowing to me. Like uh, the impact. I mean, 
even though he moved back in and I'm sure things were good. I mean, the moment you hear that, the next... I mean, they, they weren't going downhill. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But I mean, going to the doctor the next morning, hearing this and leaning on him, you know, but still thinking like, we just started to figure this out last night. Yeah. And now we're starting this journey. What the hell? Well, it it's interesting. I, I've made the joke and it's a bad joke. And so I need to stop calling it a joke. But I have made the comment more more than once that cancer saved my marriage. Um, and, and it, in it, in a lot of ways it did because both my husband and I are very smart. We're both very well educated. We use our brains for a lot of things. And when you're in a relationship, sometimes your brain is not the best organ to be using. Um, and really it's just how to get your brain out of the way of your heart. And the wonderful thing about cancer is it stopped the conversation that we were having about our relationship. We got our brains out of our relationship and we were just with each other. And suddenly we were, our brains were very distracted by something else called cancer. And, and it let our hearts find each other again. And more than once people have asked me, you know, how do you like, you know, manage a, a, a relationship that's falling apart? And I look at them and I'm like, well, do you still love the person that you're with? And they say, yes, but we just can't seem to get out of our own way. And I'm like, so find something to help you get out of your own way. I strongly don't recommend getting cancer, but come up with something else, you know, adopt an animal, um, you know, just do something else to get your brain out of the conversation. And, uh, in, in our case, cancer was that thing. And so four months later, as I got out of the hospital and I was done with chemotherapy, suddenly we realized that our relationship was in fact different. And then what we did is we purposely didn't let our brains try and go back to what it was. And instead we just sat in, 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 in the, in the new now. Um, and at times that was difficult and, you know, I was worried that he was going to leave and he was worried that things were going to happen again. But every time our brains would kind of spin up that way, we would call each other on it and say, that's not where we are now. We're in a different place. Remember, we're in a different place. We're not there anymore. We're here. So it, it took a lot and it, and you know, it's been, oh wow, eight years now. Um, and every now and again, we do still have a moment where we have to sit down and be like, this isn't, this isn't where our relationship is. That's where it was, but it's not where it is. And, um, yeah, there's a wonderful woman, um, psychotherapist, couples therapist named Esther Perel. And she talks a lot about the ability to have multiple relationships with the same human. Oh, fascinating. Um, Yeah. Cause she does a lot of work on uh, couples who cheat and how to bring that couple back together if possible. Right. And one of the pieces of advice that she gives is don't think it's the relationship from before, like build a new relationship. And so we joke that we are on our fourth relationship with each other (laughs) and our third, since we actually got married. Um, And it's wonderfully freeing because suddenly it's like, Oh wait, we don't have to be that couple that we were three years ago. We can be the couple we are now. And we're both happy with that couple. And so oh, I love that. Yeah. Yeah. It's incredibly, it's, it's, it's a, it's a very freeing way to think about how to be in relationship with another human. I saw that theme, you know, you mentioned the idea of like not going back and that to me, <laughs> you had a whole chapter called change about that, but that was the part 
that really struck me. And, you know, I also love that your friend said about being a love story because I agree about that. But like to me, the big theme for me coming out of the book was, and you were talking about how your body was never going to be able to go back. I mean, obviously cancer changed you physically and changed the way your body works. And I mean, just natural aging will do that to any of us. Um <laughs> But then how you also, I mean, your relationship with your husband and then just how you kind of came to this realization of like having to accept that there are times where you can't go back. And I mean, my gosh, you know, recording this during the whole COVID pandemic, I feel like that's, that's more relevant than ever. Yeah. Not funny, but, but yeah. Yeah. I mean, here's, that would be really hard it is really hard for me right now, just thinking about that with COVID. But for you, realizing that during cancer, was like, how did you process that? Like knowing that some things, you know, both your body, your the way you think, you know, your husband's, your, all that's never, not that it's going to be worse, but it's just never going to be, you can't go back. Well, I mean, to be honest, it took heart surgery to teach me that lesson. I you have some extreme things teaching you all these lessons. I here. do. <laughs> I'm not very good at listening to the subtle things. So <laughs> it takes a lot to get me to change my mind. Um, and I'm very lucky that I've had very good health care to help me through that. Um, but yeah, I didn't actually learn that lesson after cancer and then chemotherapy. And I tried. I tried very hard. I tried to go back to the job that I had. I tried to get my brain to think the way that it had been thinking. I tried to get my body back to the, the body of a early thirties person who'd never had cancer and who'd never gone through chemotherapy. Um, and I failed on all counts, all counts. Uh, the only thing that actually survived that year and a half was my marriage. Um, and it was after the heart surgery where I, I'm not a religious person, but I was staring into the, ceiling of the ICU. And I said, I'm doing something wrong. I mean, I'm doing something wrong. I can't be doing something right. If this is where I'm lying right now. And I talk about it in the book, but what, what followed was a journey of finding my teachers because I realized that my brain had gotten me from chemotherapy to heart surgery. And so my brain wasn't going to help me figure out how to get from heart surgery to health. And, um, and so I had to find people who would. And what followed was, frankly, a remarkable story of um, paying attention to the little things to help me get to the point where I had the teachers and I was capable of listening to them uh, to get to the point where I have health. And I will be blunt with you right now is that one of those teachers is my body. Um, I just didn't know how to listen to it. So. Yeah. And I imagine your body of all teachers is one that's never going to change its opinion. You're not going to be able to sway it a different way. I mean, your body's telling you this is how it is. You're yeah, on board you're or you're not. Yeah, your body doesn't live in the future or the past. It lives in the present. And it, if you're in pain, if you, if there's something going on, it tells you. And if you're not paying attention, then it moves on to the next thing. Um, or it tries to tell you harder. Or it tries to tell you even harder. And I, I don't like 
saying that, um, that I brought cancer into my life because I think that puts blame on myself where I'm not quite sure it belongs. And I don't want people to believe that cancer comes into their life to punish them in any way. Sure. Um, but I do believe that our bodies will throw up roadblocks if we're not going in the right direction. And those roadblocks can be any version of dis-ease. So anything that's making you not comfortable in life. Um, and sometimes that dis-ease is an actual disease. And sometimes it's an injury. And sometimes it's just a twinge. But our bodies are incredibly wise. And um, I do think that as a collective, considering we are film recording this during covid uh, we're about to learn the true wisdom of our bodies, honestly, and and the planet's body, and you know, all of all of our non-brain wisdom is about to come flying to the surface. I think. Oh, I think so. You reminded me of. I spoke with um, her name is Laura Savage. She was uh, early on in the podcast, one of my guests, and this always sticks with me. She. Had, she's an actress and a dancer and a performer, and she was doing this show, Newsies, I mean, hundreds of times, you know, plenty of times. And then one time she landed the wrong way in a normal routine and tore her ACL. Oh, ah, e, ah, ah. Yeah. And I had, had to get it reconstructed, go through physical therapy, all this. And she said the same thing you did. She said, I stopped during that process. I had to stop. I had to sit back. I had to slow down. And I realized I was, you know, all these things in my life, I was too content, my relationship. And I think my body was saying, hey, slow down. I got to tell you something. Yep. Yeah. I think there's really something to that. It's something I've been trying to become more cognizant of. I mean, since, you know, talking to her, reading your book and just this idea of like, there really is something between the mind and the body. Like they are connected in this way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I 100% believe that. Absolutely. You, th- we keep talking about this heart surgery and I, I want to clarify the part of the story here because this, <laughs> this part is just nuts. You weren't <laughs> expecting to have heart surgery either. This no. was after you, you know, after cancer, after chemo, there was uh, an additional complication that arose and then there were some recommendations from healthcare workers to go down this route. And then it turns out maybe you didn't have to. How did you, I imagine there was some forgiveness there. I mean, basically it comes down to, you probably didn't need to have open heart surgery, but you no. did. Well, well, I mean, it depends, right? Like, did I yeah. physically need to have open heart surgery? Probably oh, not. Interesting. Did I need to have open heart surgery in order to stop the route that I was trying oh, I love to pull my way through? I never well, thought about I, that. You know, it's like yeah. the tricks, it's the tricks we play it's with worth ourselves. Considering though, right? Yeah, yeah. It, it it certainly makes the whole thing seem less. Uh, um. It, it it gives it gives the entire process worth to me. So yeah, if I'm going meaning. to go, yeah, and you know who knows, right? Like, I made it up, but yeah, it, it's worked for me. It is a story that has worked for me, but it is a story that I have made up. Um, just so your listeners know, those who haven't read my book, um, I was di- the kind of cancer I had was a non-Hodgkin lymphoma, and it sat in my uh, in my chest between my lungs, above my heart, and um, as part of the process of um, recovering from that particular kind of cancer, I had a surgery to remove the tumor, which involved cracking open my chest and that whole thing. So 
Um, I did that. And then a year and a half later, uh, I basically had a biopsy go wrong and they ended up having to, um, and as part of the biopsy going wrong, they poked a hole in my heart. So that's why all of this was focused in and around the area of my body, which holds my heart. And, um, and so as a result of poking a hole in my heart, they then had to fix the hole, hence the open heart surgery. So it was supposed to be an outpatient procedure and I was in the hospital for five days instead and uh, out of work for 10 weeks while I recovered from open heart surgery. So oh, geez. that's, that, that is the, um, that is the, the very brief version of that story. Um, and no, I mean, I didn't have cancer. So the procedure, what they saw in the scans that thought that they thought I might've had cancer again, um, that precipitated the biopsy that then poked the hole in my heart. Like I didn't have cancer again, so I didn't have to have the biopsy and I, nobody needed to poke a hole in my heart and yeah. I didn't have that heart surgery. But if I was personally on a path that wasn't working for me, which I believe I was cause it wasn't working for me. Um, what else? could have stopped my attention. I mean, cancer didn't stop me from living a life that wasn't working particularly well for me. Chemotherapy didn't stop me. Um, so maybe making me the most critical patient in a hospital that deals with gunshot victims, maybe that is what caught my attention. And in my, and you know, in my case it did, it, that, that caught my attention in a way that cancer and chemotherapy and all the rest of it hadn't. So, you know, was it necessary? Physically, no. Yeah, that's a fair perspective. Why did your body need to get your attention so bad? Well, it speaks back to the conversation we were having before about going back. So, well, two two things, actually. Um, I mean, and this speaks, I think, more to the way that I grew up and the way that my brain works and, you know, the, the stories that we tell ourselves to get through our days. But, um, you know, I had a, I had a certain prescription of how to live my life. Um, and it involved going to elite fancy prep schools and then going to fancy colleges and then getting the right job and then marrying the right man and then going to the right graduate school and then getting the right job out of graduate school and then having babies and moving to the suburbs and, you know, like the checklists that yeah. we all have that Very we don't realize, yeah, yeah that, that we don't realize we actually are living by until we have a moment where we stop living them and suddenly we're like, wait, who told me I had to have babies? Like, wait, who told me I had to get married? Wait, hold on. I have to go to the suburbs. Why do I have to go to the suburbs? You know, like it's kind of a joke, but like not really. Right. Um, No, I think it's very true. Yeah. (laughs) So I was living this life that I wasn't choosing. I thought I was choosing it because I was making the decision around which graduate school to go to and which fancy job to accept. But I wasn't actually choosing whether or not I wanted to be living the life that I was living. And so what cancer tried to do and heart surgery successfully did was give me the opportunity to choose the life that I wanted to lead. In some ways, it kind of ripped you out of your your prescriptive life, right? I mean, because yeah. I mean, in the book, you describe how after all this, you know, you recovered and you're going through the weeks of recovery. You kept trying to go back to your job. I mean, you're a lawyer at the time, yep. a pretty busy lawyer, long hours. I mean, a lot of work. Whole thing. Um, 
Yeah, and you kept trying to go back, and your coworkers are kind of like, maybe you should, you know, continue to recover a little bit, and you know, we'll we'll be here when you get here. We get back, it's okay. But you know, like to your point, I mean, you you wanted that life back, and that 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 life, and yeah, it sounds like they the you know all of this. Your body basically ripped you out of that life and said, "Uh uh-uh. Yeah. Said, no, 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 no. And, oh, you're not going to pay attention to that one? Oh, okay, pay attention to this one. And that was actually what one of my teachers said after heart surgery is he said, listen, if you don't start paying attention to some of these, at some point, modern medicine isn't going to be able to save your life. So... Well, that's a hard thing to hear. Oh, it was... It scared the bejesus out of me, to be perfectly honest. Um, Of everything that I'd gone through... That those words coming out of that teacher's mouth are what really made me stop dead in my tracks. Um, Because before it was just a series of ridiculous health events that aren't supposed to happen to healthy people in their 30s, right? Um, And then suddenly what he did is he put it all together and he said, listen, like it could be a series of ridiculous health events that shouldn't happen to someone in their 30s. But like, what if you think about it a different way? Think about it as you know, this remarkable human being in her early 30s is leading the wrong life. And maybe this is the universe or God or whoever you believe in. Maybe this is their way of saying, hold on a second. Oh, wait, you're not going to pay attention to that one. Hold on harder. Oh, wait, you're not going to pay attention to that one. Yeah, <laughs> I'm going to keep uh, yeah. knocking at the door. <laughs> and, you know, and he was really cute. He was like, listen, there's like all sorts of ways you can have conversations with that entity of whoever it is that we believe. Um, he was like, I strongly recommend that you might want to start voluntarily having those conversations instead of having them whacked over your head with a two by four. That's uh, a good way to put it. <laughs> yeah. So. That was the other part that struck me is, I mean, I think you were 33 when getting diagnosed and I'm 35 now and I, I'm reading this and I'm like, that's so young. I mean, like, you know, and of course I feel like we all think, you know, we don't, you know, you're 25 and you think 15 is young and then you're 30, you're like, well, 25 is really young and then you're 35 and 30 (laughs) is really young. So we all think we're young until, uh, I don't know, I don't know what, I guess we get old. Yeah, exactly. So I was, I'm reading this and I'm like, oh my God, like she was 33 and all this yeah. shit just came out of nowhere. And I, I just connected very personally on that level. You, Your friend saying it's a love story. I love that because, you know, it's interesting to me. You said it's a memoir and it really is. I, I, how did you, I mean, I know we discussed how you decided kind of like this could be something that can be out in the world and I'll share this story. But what made you decide to share the whole story or at least more than just you know, the part where you're 33 and ripped out of your life and then, you know, this all changes. I mean, you give so much background about the love story part, especially about you and Michael, how you met early, early in life and then crossed paths. And what made you kind of want to share the whole thing as opposed to just that, you know, the most recent? To be perfectly honest, uh, I think a cancer story just out of context with the survivors or or, or not, um, without the patient's life is, uh, one dimensional for the reasons that I just shared with you. Yeah. Um, you know, these huge moments happen to us. Um, and I firmly believe they happen to us for a reason. And so 
telling that that just the health side of my story without the the job confusion and without the relationship confusion it makes the story one dimensional and I, I think frankly it makes it uninteresting um and the other part of it too and i mentioned at the beginning i i wrote this story to heal and there was a lot having to do with the collapse of michael's and my relationship leading up to cancer that I still needed to heal from emotionally. The marriage had healed, but you know, I kind of wasn't done with it in my head and in my emotions. And so it just kind of came out like some days I'd be writing about the cancer and the recovery and what was going on. And then other days I would just find myself compelled to write about what Michael and I had been dealing with. And, um, and so I paid attention to that. Like if they're both coming out of me at the same time as part of this process of telling one story, then maybe there's like something there. Um, and he's such an intimate part of my health story. I mean, he's there, he was there every day with me in the hospital and, um, that I think that I wanted to make sure his, the importance in his life beyond a caregiver was shared. Um, and it worked. I mean, it's funny. I mean, like there were parts of that book that I wrote that, you know, I usually talk to my therapist once every three weeks or something. And while I was writing that book, there were parts of it where I'd have to be on the phone with her once every three days. Um, and there were aspects of cleaning up my relationship with him. And there were aspects of especially the heart surgery day where it was just exceptionally difficult for me to write. Um, and that, you know, the difficult stuff is where the grist for the mill is, right? So it's like yeah. the minute that I actually kind of got through those and I could read them without crying and I could read them without sort of <laughs> losing my breath um, or having a panic attack, suddenly I realized that I'd actually dealt with it. And that was incredibly gratifying. It's like, oh, look, I'm done. Oh, yeah. What yeah, a great like now, now I've got like new, Yeah. Now I've got like, you know, I'm done with that. Like, what's the next problem I have to deal with? Um, <laughs> so... So, so there was that side of it, but then also to be perfectly honest, just when you're crafting a story and it is a memoir, but you know, stories aren't compelling unless they have kind of a beginning, a middle and an end. Sure. Um, and in a lot of ways, this is the hero's journey. If you think about Joseph Campbell and all the rest of it. So sort of where does it land? And, um, you know, I, I didn't die. So it didn't end with that. Um, I am still living a life and I'm living a life of curiosity and I'm living a life of lessons. And so, you know, I had to pick a moment where it end, where the story could end Yeah. and having the story end with my husband's and my relationship being healed seemed like a good spot. You know, it's like, if we're going to bring something to a conclusion, that seems like a good conclusion to bring it to. Um, so that's the other side of it. Like yeah. both in terms of my own healing and also in terms of just crafting a well-written story. Yeah, I love that. I do think I agree with you on all, on all counts there. Like, I to me, your story, especially from the book, is just one. It is about your life. It's about how cancer spoke to you, the person. And so getting the background on you, the person, yeah, I can't imagine not having that background. Were you, I know during during your uh, time with cancer, you started a blog to kind of keep 
your family and friends updated, as you mentioned. So you were writing a lot then. Prior to that, like throughout your life, had you written much? Like, were you someone that would journal or write, or was this blog kind of the first time you started? I the reason I ask this. And I'm not blowing smoke or anything. It's one of the best written, well-written books I've ever read. Like you, I'm wondering if part of this whole thing was like you, your body was like, hey, you have a calling as a writer. Like you have something here. You have a gift to share with the world because it's, it's it's just so well-written. And so I'm just curious, like, were you always a great writer or was that part of this? Well, first I am going to take that compliment. Thank you. Oh, absolutely. Thank you. Um, I have always been a writer. I have never been a journaler. So I've never written, except for one, two stories that I wrote in high school. I have never written personal stories. Um, I've also never written fiction. So this was my first foray as an adult into, well, blogging, but you know, the book was my first sort of full foray into a creative nonfiction personal thing. Um, really just a creative written story, um, nonfiction or not. I have though spent my entire career writing. So I graduated from high school and I went into state government and I graduated from college and I went into state government and I a great deal of my time there was writing analytical, uh, reports and, you know, policy positions and this, that, and the other. And then I went to law school where all you do in law school is write. And then I went and became a lawyer and all you do as a lawyer is write. Um, is that a different style of writing though? I, I don't imagine that's as captivating or maybe I just haven't read enough of that sort of <laughs> material. <laughs> Clearly you've been reading material from lawyers who, you know, not very good at their jobs. Um, but the beautiful thing actually about being trained as a lawyer and one of the most amazing compliments I actually got on this book was from a friend of mine who is a very, very good lawyer. And he said, this is one of the most brilliantly written arguments I've ever read. And I was like, Oh, I oh love my that. God, I it love is. it. It's like, thank you. So this is the trick. And this is why I think that like legal writing that doesn't make any sense is the worst kind of legal writing because it's hard to do good legal writing and have it tell a story and have it be compelling and have it be something where when you're done with it, you're like, Oh, I 100% agree with everything that was just handed to me. Yes. That is the job of a lawyer. We are, we are trained to make arguments and to pull evidence and to weave a story to convince a lawyer, I mean, to convince a judge or to convince an opposing party or to convince a, you know, a a negotiation situation that our perspective is the perspective that should be um, adopted. So this is my, my story is, it's creative and it's my own personal story, but it it is in many ways a piece of legal writing um, because I have shared my perspective on the world and I've backed it up and I've given you lots of evidence as to why you should believe it. And I feel like I've made a compelling argument and people seem really taken with it. Um, so I never thought of it that way. So now I'm thinking you being a <laughs> lawyer was all part of the destiny here. Like, well, you know, it's like the, once again, it's the stories that we tell ourselves. I try and yeah. I, this is how I convince myself that my legal education was not a complete and total waste of time. And money. <laughs> 
<laughs> I I don't know. As an outsider here, it's pretty compelling. I mean, when I think about it, when you phrase it as you were making an argument, you had an opinion, you backed up the opinion with evidence, and you had a strong argument. That's I, that is what the book. I mean, yes, yes. Now I happen to agree with the whole thing. I mean, but even if I didn't agree, I could still agree that you were making an argument. Yeah, that's a beautiful way of looking at it. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was, it's one of the most fun pieces of legal writing I've ever written, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> I really like the client. The client client was near and dear to my heart. <laughs> Were you kind of, you know, after Michael, your husband kind of said, oh, maybe you could share this manuscript out. Were you still a little bit nervous about, I mean, putting this out there and then, and then once it was actually out there and once you had asked people to get reviews, I mean... Were you ready for it or was it still just that whole nerve wracking process of, I mean, really it's true vulnerability there. Yeah. Um, yes, yes, it is. Uh, in many ways, a, one of the most nerve wracking things I've ever done in my entire life. Uh, in fact, two weeks before I was two weeks before my publication date. So just about this time last year, um, I called my publisher and I left her like a, I was practically breathing into a paper bag voicemail. And, um, and I said, I don't know. Oh my God, what have I done? Like literally what have I done? I have written this whole book and it's like all of the dirty laundry of my relationship and all of the dirty laundry with like, with, with my own body. Like I lost the plot and my publisher called me back and she's a wonderful woman. And, uh, she, she was just laughing. She was like, I mean, we could pull it do you really want to pull it? And I was like, no, but say something. And she was like, <laughs> it's a wonderful book and people are going to love it precisely because you were as honest as you were. And I was like, okay. And I took a deep breath and, you know, and the ball rolls. Um, it is, it's, you know, we have, I have personal friends who are still just blown away that I put this much of myself out for public consumption. But you know what? Like if, if we're all presenting images of ourselves as perfectly made up, beautiful humans who never screw up, then it's we're putting out false images of what it takes to actually survive this life with any semblance of humor or grace, right? Yeah. Like, we all have lessons to learn. We all screw up. And the trick is how to be a good person while you're doing that and how to learn something from it while you're doing that. And that's actually one of the main reasons why I called it Wait, It Gets Worse, because it always gets worse, right? Like, life happens, something bad happens, like, whatever it is, burn the chicken, you know, like, whatever it is, Yeah. how do you be a good person inside that moment? Um, and, you know, how do you apologize? How do you forgive? How do you build community and build relationship. Um, and if we're never taught and if we're never shown the really nasty underbelly of what we're all capable of doing to each other with a, what I'd like to think as a sort of a success story and a way to handle it coming out on the other end, then how are we ever supposed to learn how to become good people? Um, so that, that, <laughs> That is how I justify putting my entire life out for public consumption. <laughs> you know what? No, I fully support that because 
I'm such a believer in this because I've been affected by it. When people like yourself have extraordinary lessons they've learned or they feel there's something there that others could benefit from and then choose to share that, there's this ripple effect. You know what I mean? Like you've now created a positive impact on... That was what, you know, when I emailed you, I'm sitting in my backyard, I'm reading this and I'm reading the part about change, that chapter, and I took some pictures of my phone because I wanted to... I don't know how you like... I guess I don't highlight books. That was my way of like saving the quote. And I'm like, (laughs) I'm sitting there and I thought, I'm sitting here and this is in some way changing my life in this moment. And Lydia has no idea. And I thought, that's such a weird thing. Like she wrote this book that has the potential to affect millions of humans, but she might never know. (laughs) Yeah. You might never know who you affected, how you affected them. You know, there's no like feedback loop there in some ways. I guess I should go write a review. That's how we could solve this problem. Oh, there you um, go. Thank you. <laughs> but and, and so I, you know, part of this is thank you for doing that. But I, I just, I fully support that because you have now given us, you know, you've decided to share this and you've now created a ripple effect. You've created positive impact. And you know what I mean? Like, you're only human. You didn't have to do that. You could have decided, I'm not ready for that. That's too much for me. And you did. And like I said, now it's just, I I feel like there's so much good that'll come from this. Oh, thank you. I hope so. I mean, that's that's why I published it. Um, And it's interesting. I, I, I still find it a little remarkable that it came out about a year before all of this happened to the planet. Seriously. Like I said, Um, that whole not going back thing, you couldn't have been more relevant. Well, not going back, how to be kind when you're stressed and afraid for your life. Um, How to, you know, how to handle being stressed and afraid for your life and having your world turned upside down and feeling like you don't have any choice about where you are right now when in fact there are choices all around us. It's just recognizing them as choices. Um, yeah, I'm, I've been noticing that there's, you know, I like to think that my book is, you know, the end all and the be all. But the wonderful thing about this is that I feel like my book is just one of um, a pantheon of stories that have come out in the last 5, 10, 20 years, I think, just to specifically help humanity get through what we're about to be faced with. I mean, currently, and I think it's only going to get worse from here, honestly. Oh, it's Um, all preparation. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. So, yeah, what was it? 2000, yeah, eight years ago, you said. So 2012 is when you got diagnosed. I Mm -hmm. mean, that's, first of all, congratulations on eight years later. That's amazing. But so it was a, how long were you working on the manuscript then? Was that a couple years or something? I'm just trying to think it was quite a while. Yeah. I mean, a couple years of recovery, but... Well, exactly. So um, I was sick during 2012, and then I had my first surgery in 2013, and then I had my heart surgery in 2014, and I ended up uh, leaving my job at the beginning of 2015. So I didn't actually start writing the manuscript that became this book until early 2015. Um, And uh, I had a publisher by mid-2016. I sat on it for a year, um, honestly, not quite sure why. And then really kind of pushed it out and did the finishing touches and all of the edits and everything from 2018. And then it came out in 2019. Um, was this I, sitting on it like a uh, possible second guessing of like, maybe not? It was a little bit. It was, is this a story that I want to tell? I was getting a lot of feedback from a lot of um, 
agents, especially, uh, saying, you know, cancer memoirs, there's no shelf space for cancer memoirs. Publishers don't publish them, you know, and I kept being like, this isn't a cancer memoir. They're like, well, you got sick with cancer. It's a cancer memoir. And I'm like, okay. Oh, jeez. Um, yeah. So there was a lot of feeling like I was being categorized before people had really even discovered what the book was about. Yeah. Um, and so as a result, I ended up actually at a much smaller publisher and I'm delighted I am to be perfectly honest. Uh, I mean, she's, they've, they've been wonderful. Um, and they saw me for who I am and not who they thought I was or should be or how I would be categorized at Barnes and Noble or whatever. Um, so that was part of the length of time that it took. But the other reason why it took the time that it take that it took is a lot of stories come out um, before they're ready. And my story, when I first wrote it down, was before it was ready. I didn't have enough perspective. Um, the story didn't have enough perspective. My own healing hadn't happened to an extent where the lessons that I was trying to relay made any sense, um, because I hadn't really understood them. Um, so especially I think when there's true transformation journeys that are being shared, if they're being shared in real time, it, 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 it loses its impact. Um, and my story, I think just took the time that it took in order to be wrapped up in the little bow where it is now. Um, it's interesting cause I get a lot of people asking like, well, when, when's your second book going to come out? And I'm like, dude, <laughs> like I, you know, my stories take time and <laughs> like I'm living the stories that make up my next book. Like I, I have no idea what like the big overarching message of my next book is. And like, how can I possibly <laughs> like, like, I'm not just like, you know, pulling ideas out of my ass. Yeah. Like I'm, I'm living stories and I'm trying to figure out what that actually means and how to package it in a way that helps people, you know, make sense of their own life. So. Is there a next book? I, I don't literally mean like, do you have one in mind, but like, is it something that you've thought about? Like this is, I, I want to continue this, this journey. Yeah. Um, I'm actually, it's been really fun. Actually, I've been taking fiction writing classes. Um, and so I'm about to, I've been working on a few different short stories. We'll see where those end up if they end up anywhere. Oh, but, fun. Yeah. So that's just been a fun exercise. But um, my next book will probably be a similar style, a memoir style series of stories. Um, and the plot in the way that this plot was about cancer, but I was actually telling a story about something completely different. Um, the next plot of my book of, sorry, the plot of my next book is going to be about, uh, caregiving and taking care of my parents as they age and taking care of, uh, Michael's mother as she's aging and, um, you know, my sister and her family and, uh, which is a whole new ball of worms for me. Cause I've never considered myself someone who would ever be a caregiver ever. Um, and so I'm learning a lot about myself, but there's, I don't know what the story under the story is yet. So I, I know that the plot is about caregiving, but what the story is actually about, um, I'm beginning to get hints of it, but I'm not entirely sure where it's going to go. And that's why these things take the time they take. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's amazing. I yeah. I will say I'm, I'm happy to hear that there's 
potentially another book from you coming out. Uh, well, we can talk about this again in a few years, you know, <laughs> we'll see. Like I said, I think, I think you have such a gift and it's great that, you know, you've now, you know, this part of your life is where you're able to start sharing that gift, you know, with the you. masses. So that's awesome. Yeah. I love it. I love writing. I love, I love figuring out the multi layers to these stories. It's, it brings me no end of delight. So thank you. Do you feel now like your body, you know, it, it kind of ripped you out of your, you know, the, the state of life you were in before and had you readjust? Do you feel like you and your body are kind of on the same page now? Like you're, it's not knocking at the door anymore and, and, and maybe there's some things you didn't listen to that's trying to remind you about? Are you, are you both in, in sync now? Um. I, we are in much better sync than we have ever been. Put it that okay. way. Sure. Um, so I count that as a win, um, but I also Absolutely. count that as a work in progress. Um, I am healthy. I am grateful, exceptionally grateful that I'm healthy. Um, I, I don't seem to have any long-term lasting damage from anything, except that my, um, you know, the numbers of, of my immune system, how, you know, modern medicine measures your immune system is still not great. So keep that in mind for anybody yeah. who has, you know, like for anybody <laughs> in your life who has gone through chemotherapy, especially at this particular point in our history with COVID, um, you know, we're all immunocompromised, even if we don't think we are. Um, but, you know, my body still knocks and sometimes it takes a little bit longer than quote unquote, it should um, for me to notice. And, you know, my body's actually been knocking for the last couple of months and it took me until Monday, frankly, to realize what it was trying to tell me. Um, so sometimes it happens quickly and sometimes it takes a little bit of time, but I am grateful that I have set up my life now. Um, Michael and I don't live in downtown Chicago anymore. We live in the middle of nowhere in New York in upper in upstate New York. And, um, I'm in a small town. We, we live in the quiet. We live in the dark. Um, we live a much slower life than we did, even though career wise, my husband is still doing his work. It's just slower. Um, yeah, it's a pretty stark contrast in lifestyle from, you know, living like the heart of a city like Chicago. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's made a dramatic difference actually in both of our health, to be honest. Um, and so there are aspects about how we have crafted our life, um, both in our physical environment and in who my uh, healthcare practitioners are and my teachers, that um, I, I have set my life up so that I cannot ignore the messages that my body and is trying to send me, um, basically as a fail-safe, because I know that my brain is not helpful. And so I've, I've put myself in sort of guardrails, which is great. Because if I'm not paying attention, then somebody else notices and says, hey, have you noticed? And I go, oh, right. Oh, yeah. Oh, thanks, brain, for, you know, ignoring that for the last two weeks. That's great. You know, <laughs> um, but I know that, right? Like our brains are here to trick us. And so, you know, I've now tricked my brain or I've now at least compensated for that. So, yeah, and you've set yourself up for, you know, a, a solid, I mean, for success, really, right? Like you've put yourself in an environment where you like you said, it fail safes in place and you can yeah. make sure that when it comes knocking, I do think too, you mentioned that you're, you and your body are probably more in sync than ever. 
But I wonder if it's the type of thing where there's never full perfection there. Like I wonder if our body is always going to be checking in just to make a stop for a moment and, and you know, reevaluate, make sure we're on the right path. I think that's 100% true. I mean, why are we here, right? Why are we as humans on this planet living these lives um, to learn the lessons to learn, right? And one of our big teachers is the vessel that we are born into with the stories of that vessel um, and the family that that vessel is born into. And, um, you know, we, we put ourselves here to learn the lessons. And so I think as long as we're here, we have plenty to learn. Um, where we go after that, I have absolutely no idea. But, you know, might as well learn something while we're doing this part of it. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, like it all idea. begins to seem a little fruitless and nonsensical. And, you know, why really are we here? Please tell me it's not just to commute to a job. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I hope so. It, that's been one of the one of the weirdest things of COVID is like... Yeah, not commuting. Yeah. And to some extent, like, missing it because the, at least it was an interaction with other humans. You know, it's this weird... I guess yeah. the grass is always greener scenario. <laughs> Yeah, you know, being out and about and being among our fellow humans, I think, is a huge portion of why we're here. Um, so, yeah, the beauty actually of all of this technology is that we don't completely lose it while we're all sitting at home. Yeah, hopefully, yeah, it, yeah. it's true. It also makes you, it, you know, it it makes you appreciate those in person connections. You know, like. So much that, more. Yeah, yeah. Like it's great to be able to hop on a Zoom or a video chat, but then you also, you realize, oh, well, it's not I the remember. Same. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I'm going to appreciate when I'm sitting down in the same room in the chair next to someone so much more when I have that ability again. Maybe you're right. Maybe this whole COVID thing was like to, it's like your body or my body talking to me. This is Earth, I guess, talking to humanity, something. I think Earth is desperately trying to tell us all to slow down yeah that's true yeah. um i mean for her frank for her health <laughs> um <laughs> but i think also for ours right we're all running it so, this has been stuck in my mind shawshank redemption was on tv the other day and such a good movie you know right such a brilliant movie and that heartbreaking part with brooks and leaving the mm. prison and and you yeah. know he, he writes that letter back to his his fellow inmates. And, you know, he said, when I went in, I'd seen maybe like one car a year. And now there's just cars all over the place. Like, when did, when did we decide we had to get so busy? I'm, I'm messing that quote up, but there was yeah. some, something, it's like he went into jail in like, I don't know, the early 1900s and he came out in 1940 or 50 or something. And he was like, when did we decide we had to get so busy? And I was just laughing about it. Like, what a great line, especially in this particular moment of like, why are we so busy? Like, wh when did that become our purpose to be busy? And I don't think it is. Um, the other cool thing, actually, that I learned, I don't know, maybe about six months ago was our RNA, um, like, pulses, I'm gonna not get any of the scientific words on this comment right but pulses a, like a light a photon or something out okay. into the ether and all rna is pulsing this light 
thing out in the ether. And, um, and it's one of the reasons actually why walking in the forest is so nurturing for us because we're getting all of the light pulses from all of the plants and they're, oh, talking, wow. and they're talking to our RNA and our RNA is talking to them. And it's this whole thing that's happening that we don't know about that's happening. And so when we're actually physically near another human, we're communicating with them in a holistic way, not just with our eyes or mouth or ears or in the ways that our brain understands. And so the fact that we are actually physically separated from the people that we love, um, you know, our friends and our extended family and things like that, it is actually, it, it's making us physically lonely um, because our little light pulses are used to interacting with each other. And so it's funny. It's like, I love this technology because it is keeping us connected in this particular moment when we don't have a choice. But I do think that it's also showing us how important it is to not, to, to have offline physical, personal connections, which I think that we as a, as a culture had forgotten about in the last sort of 10, 15, 20 years. Um, with social media and oh, I have all these friends on Instagram and I'm like, no, you don't like, who are all of these people? Like you have people that you communicate with and that you may enjoy, but like, are they really friends? Like, are they really like, you know, light pulsar friends? Like, I don't know, maybe they are, but like, you know, like, yeah. What a w interesting way to think about, like to qualify that. Mm -hmm. oh, and there wow. really is something tangible to actual yeah. physical interaction. Um, and yeah, I do miss that. So that was a very long way of saying that I also Oh, yeah. <laughs> I love that. I haven't seen Shawshank Redemption in so long, but I remember the part you're talking about. And that is so relevant. I've experienced this myself. I just, you look at the different parts of your day, you know, pre-COVID and currently, there's parts that suck for sure. But then there's parts, like I've been going for a walk. I make sure I start out every morning with a walk and I go for a walk at yeah. lunchtime. Yeah. And I thought, well, when this is all over and we're back to our normal routines or the new normal routines, like, I'm going to make sure I still go for a walk at lunchtime. Why not? Like, there you go. there's nothing I'm doing that's too busy that I can't go for a 25 minute walk. No, nothing. And I will be very surprised if once, quote unquote, all of this is over, um, that as many people are working in big buildings in downtowns. I mean, I think we've all proven that a lot of the work that is done. It can be done remotely. So that'll be that'll be an interesting byproduct of all of this, just to see what happens with that. Yeah, the flexibility of it all, I hope, which to me stems from like empathy. I hope that, you know, as we start to, and that's the thing, I don't think this is going to be like over one day. It's going to gradually, you know, gradient into something else. Right, like we'll shift, it will shift, and eventually we'll all be sort of in this new yeah. world that we can't predict at the moment. Yeah. yeah, exactly. But I hope that what carries through all that, the transition especially, is the empathy. Like, I feel like we, yeah. as a, 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 a human race, have become more empathetic to some degree. You know, I don't think we're perfect. But during all this, just out of the, I think, the human need to support each other. And I hope that we realize that as we carry on and the pandemic is less of a threat and the years go by and we become again, it's not pandemic time that we realize we still need that. You know, even when there's no pandemic uniting us, like there are other things that we should be empathizing with each other about. Oh yeah. I mean, I think it's a wonderful opportunity to start examining all of the ways that, you know, we've forgotten how to be empathetic towards 
our fellow creatures, right? Our fellow man, our fellow animals, our environment, all of it. Um, yeah, I do. I, I echo that hope. Yeah. Lydia, thank you so much. Let me ask you this. I wait, it gets worse is the book and I do want everyone to go buy it. But as the author, is there a good place for people to buy it? That's better for you. I know sometimes Amazon, you know, isn't the best place to buy it to support the author. I mean, to be honest, I get the, I, I get the same amount of money no matter where you buy it. Um, oh, but, okay. <laughs> yeah. So keep in mind that when Amazon is discounting its prices dramatically, it's doing it in order to undercut all the other booksellers, not because it's screwing the distributor or the publisher. Um, Interesting. Yeah. So it really is actually really bad behavior um, on that level, if you think about it. Um, so I always say go buy from your independent, your local independent bookstore. Um, they may not at the moment have a fulsome online operation, but most of them are working on it desperately right now if they don't already have one. Um, or um, if um, you haven't discovered bookshop.org yet, it is the independent bookseller's answer to Amazon. So um, I've never heard of that. Yeah, it's a brand new website. It was actually, it came out in the last few months. Um, and it is slightly more expensive than Amazon, but it is cheaper than the, the price on the back of the book. Um, but, you know, I you know, like pay full price at your local bookstore because they are... I love, I love local bookstores. Um, and I think that without their curation and without their, um, skill at holding communities together, that we would lose something. Um, so I'm a big fan of just go to your local bookstore and buy my book. Oh, and also, that's so nice. the best part about that is that that helps me get to the attention of the bookstore and then someone at the bookstore will read it and then they'll start buying it and just putting it on their shelves. And then other people will just wander in and say, oh, this looks like an entertaining book. Like, I'll buy that. So that's a, that's a way to get me into the bookshelves as well. well that's even better. <laughs> yeah, that's even better. That's yeah. a great support for you then. Yeah. So, so do that. Oh. People people can't see where you are, but I can see where you are. And when I first hopped on here, you got the big bookshelves behind you. It looked like you were in uh, an independent bookstore <laughs> or a library with the amount of books you have behind you. So I could see your love for, for independent bookstores there. Yeah, we do. We love to read. So. Well, thank you so much, Lydia. I appreciate you taking the time. And oh, I love our conversation. And yeah, I hope everyone goes out and grabs a copy of Wait It Gets Worse because oh. I'm, I'm in love with it. Thank you, Tim, so much for reaching out and for this wonderful conversation. It's been a true delight. Thanks for listening to We're Only Human. Before you go, I would love to know what you had for breakfast this morning. Just send me an email, tim at we'reonlyhumanpodcast.com, and let me know what you had for breakfast this morning. Thanks.